0: 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you're there, please stand with me as we look at verse number 12. And we're going to read verses 12 down through 15. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 12 says, For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on your behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober it is for your cause for the love of christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all then we're all dead and that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto him which died for them and rose again let's have a word of prayer Dear heavenly father thank you for another opportunity you've given us to gather here tonight lord thank you for giving me the opportunity to preach Um, And God, as we get into this message, I do pray that you help me, that you give me clarity, that you fill me with your power, Lord, that you be with my tongue and and guide every word that I say. And Lord, I do pray that you help us to understand just a little bit better tonight the love that you have for us. And we'll thank you for what you do, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Brother Donnie, can you turn me down just a hair? Thank you, sir. All right, have you ever stopped to consider just how much God loves you that's a you know, we hear that and that's a, a heavy a heavy question we have those tracks that are that are in the back that that, that dr Olette wrote and uh, it's it's do you know how much god loves you and uh, it's a heavy question because it's it's a subject that is deeper than any of us are capable of really grasping uh, yet we should still try as hard as we can to to grasp it Uh, You know, God proves his love to us each and every day. He shows his love to us in, in so many ways that if we were to start naming all of them, we would be here for a very, very, very long time. And yet most of those great displays of God's love go completely unnoticed by us a lot of the time. You know, we we live in a world today where uh, everything is vying for our attention. It's so easy to get distracted with the million and one things that we all have going on at any given moment because we're all just so busy. You know, we we have uh, work, and if you're a a kid, you have school. You know, you got to take care of the family. The the news is telling you that the whole world is going to end. We're all required to run our lives at an incredibly ridiculous pace. Uh, Everything needs to be done quickly. We have more information thrown in our faces than we know what to do with. So much stuff is going on all of the time uh, in our lives every single day. And when we go through all of that, day after day after day, that can really start to take a toll on your life if if you're not careful. And have you ever been through stuff like that and you've just felt like your life is unraveling, like like everything seems to be falling apart, like like nothing seems to be going the way that it's supposed to go, that all aspects of your life are completely out of alignment and you just cannot keep up with the pace? Unfortunately, that's a, a place that more and more Christians seem to find themselves in nowadays. You know, yes, they're, they're going to church. Yes, they're praying. Yes, they're reading their Bibles. Uh, they may even be involved in some ministries, but there's still something that just seems off to them. They're also increasingly stressed and they're anxious. Uh, they have anger swelling up inside at the, at the slightest inconvenience that comes across them. Uh, while they're doing all the things that they know they should be doing and that they're supposed to be doing, there's no joy when doing it. It's just a complete exhaustion and burnout. And they're not experiencing the rest and the, and the satisfaction that they know they should be experiencing from living a life that is, that is in service to God. And all they're experiencing is this unraveling of their life. Now, I hope that what I just described to you all is extremely foreign and unfamiliar to you. But the unfortunate reality is that most of us in here if not all of us, have uh, had a very similar experience to that uh, because we've either lived that way in our lives before or we are currently living that sort of life. And I think we would all agree that that's a, a pretty significant problem, right? That ought not be the way that, that a Christian lives. That really is, it shouldn't be the way that anybody lives. But if we're experiencing anything of this sort, it's probably because we are completely missing the most important part of our life. The phrase that we read earlier was this, the love of Christ constraineth us. That is an incredibly important phrase because that word constrain literally means to hold together or to keep something from falling apart. And that verse says the love of Christ constrains us. And so what it's telling us is that the the love of God is literally what holds the Christian's life together together. And without a proper view and understanding of that love, everything else will fall apart. Our Sunday school classes are are going through the book Experiencing God by by Henry Blackaby, and it's encouraging to hear how uh, the the Lord is working that book in, 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 in so many people's hearts. And in that book, Blackaby says this, quote, your love relationship to God is the single most important aspect of your life. If that is not in order... Nothing else will be. And so tonight we're going to talk a lot about the love of God. And uh, please believe me, I I, I must preface this, because I know that there is no way that I can do this topic justice. Uh, In in explaining this topic of God's love, because it's inexplicable. You know, it's, it's something that you, you just keep finding more and more and more about and you, you try and pinpoint it with a singular word and it just does not ever do it justice. And the more you try to think about it, the more you ponder it uh, and really understand the love that God has for you, the love that God has for each and every one of us. You find that it just doesn't end. You you find one thing and it just opens up a whole new realm of, of understanding. You're just like, wow, I didn't even know that was there. Uh, and it never, ever stops. There's always more. And as I was trying to figure out a title, Title of this message. I could not uh, think of anything but the word relentless. And so tonight we're going to talk about a relentless love. That's the title of tonight's message. And while I know that we can never exhaust or really even scratch the surface of this topic. Tonight, I want us to look at three aspects of God's love with the hope that we will grow to love him more. Because isn't that the natural uh, process of what happens whenever you learn how much somebody loves you? It's that you love them more because they first loved you, right? Right. And so uh, we're going to look at this. And remember, just because we're, we're only going over three aspects of his love, that does not mean that there's not more. Uh, there are plenty more. There, These are three areas from an inexhaustible list of ways that God shows his love for us. Uh, and we should be seeking to learn more and gro- go deeper into the subject of God's love at any chance that we get to it, all right? So... Before we do that, we we need to first define what love is. I had the privilege this past school year of teaching the high school Bible class on Proverbs. It was the uh, the curriculum was Proverbs, the Fountain of Life, and uh, in that class we went through uh, the fruit of the Spirit. You're thinking the fruit of the Spirits in Galatians. Well, it, it tied into everything. Um, but we we went over a series of the fruit of the Spirit, and uh, as you probably know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, right? The love, joy, peace. It starts off with love, and so we define what love was in that class, and I like the definition enough to uh, bring it into this message. So this is what we defined love as in that class, and this is the definition that we'll use tonight. Love is an unselfish, self-sacrificing desire to seek God's best for and to meet the needs of the one being loved. All right, I'll repeat that. Love is an unselfish, self-sacrificing desire to seek God's best for and to meet the needs of the one being loved. I think that's a pretty solid definition. So let's keep that in, uh, in that, that thought in mind as to what love is as we talk about the love of God here tonight. John 3:16. You don't need to turn there because most of us probably know. You can turn there if you want to. But John 3:16, we it's probably one of the most familiar verses to everybody in this room. It says, "For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life." From this verse we see that point number 1, his love is universal. His love is universal. God loves everyone. Everyone. Think about that. That truly is a a wonderful statement. But I think the true wonder of that statement can get kind of lost because it's a pretty general statement. Especially when we consider that there is over 8 billion people that currently populate this planet right now. 8 billion and that's not to mention, however, the, the many billions or even trillions of people that previously existed before we were here, right? At the, at the dawn of humanity, whenever God created Adam, how many people have, have been there? The total number of human beings that have existed or currently exist and will exist is a number that's only known by God himself. And that number is what John 3.16 means when it says, the world, Everybody is included in that. All, all that, that number that we don't even know what it is. We can't even comprehend it. The, God loves every single one of them. Now, if I'm being honest, that already is a truth that's difficult for me to grasp. I was never really great at math whenever I was growing up. Uh, I, I uh, was homeschooled for uh, from 8th to 12th grade, and I took geometry in, in 10th grade. And Oh, just full transparency, geometry made me cry like a baby. I sobbed because I could not get geometry. And then I go off into college and my first year of college, very first semester, uh, I fail algebra two. Uh, and I was just, you know, math is not a, a good thing. So whenever people start throwing really, really big astronomical numbers at me, it's kind of just like, uh, uh, can we can we bring it down a little bit? Uh, that That's what I'm thinking. That is so many people, the amount of people that, that, is, is in that verse, for God so loved the world, is just astronomical. I can't even comprehend it. Uh, because if, if, we, if we know, if we even knew what that exact number was, it would still boggle our minds. Because it would, we would just look at it and we, we would have nothing to compare it to. But when we ask the question, how can God love that many people? It causes us to think a little bit deeper about this subject even more. Now, I know the obvious answer is because he's God, right? He, he's capable of doing that because he created all of us. And both of those answers are, are valid and true, but it's more important for us to realize that love is the very reason that God created us in the first place. And I, I, I feel like we don't really get this a lot of the time. Like many Christians, uh, we fail to understand this thought. I know I do. Uh, and I might be pre- just preaching to myself tonight, but, but I, I have a hard time grasping this. Uh, it's, you can sometimes get this idea that God's love was sort of an after effect of our creation. That God created us, and because he created us, that he now loves us. Almost like if, uh, if I were to take up woodworking thinking what in the world is this guy talking about? Uh, yeah, let, let's just say this is a horrible analogy. I already know uh, it's a, a terrible illustration. Let's just say I decided to take up woodworking. All right. And because I'm no good at woodworking, I've never done it in my life. Uh, brother, brother Daniel Thomas, whereas he? Yeah, he would he would laugh me uh, to, to scorn if, if he saw me trying to work with wood because I have no idea what I'm doing. But let's say I start, uh, you know, woodworking and, you know, I decide ah, I'm going to start on this new hobby and I'm going to make myself a chair. Ah, yes, a, a chair. Now, I've seen videos of people making chairs before, and it looks incredibly difficult. Uh, Brother Thomas, have you ever made a chair before? No. Uh, I know there's like a whole bunch of joints and stuff that you have to do, and it's, it's, a, it's a difficult process. But let's say me, this, this novice woodworker, I decide I'm going to make a chair. And I put my blood, sweat, and tears into this chair. And I I try crafting it as best as I can. Let's be honest, this is the first chair that I've ever made. It's probably going to be the last chair that I ever make because it's not gonna be good. But you know, I end up finishing this chair. And I am just, I'm proud of it, man. I I, I did it. And I know that it's not the best looking chair. I know it's not, uh, you know, it's not the, the greatest chair that has ever been made. But I have some sentimental value towards this chair, right? I love it. Why? Because i made it with my own two, hands. Now, some might look at that uh, very poor illustration and think, man, isn't that beautiful? Even though God knows we're not perfect, he still still loves us uh, because he created us. And the general idea of that statement may be true, but that is not at all the motivation behind God's love for us. Let me just say that. That's not the motivation at all. If I can put it this way, God's love for us is not a byproduct of our creation. God's love for us is the sole purpose of our creation. In Jeremiah 1.5, God says to the prophet Jeremiah, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And the same thing goes for us. You see, the only reason God ever even created us is because he first loved the thought of us. He had a a thought of of you and me and our different personalities, our different emotional compositions, you know, our different talents and gifts and and all of these things and skills and appearances. He, He knew exactly who we were before he made us and he still chose to make us afterwards. You see, God didn't make us and then decide that he loves us. He adored just the thought of us and that is what compelled him to create you. It was not a love that is circumstantial by any means. Oh oh man, I, I made another one. I guess I got to love this one too. No, that was not the, the creator's mindset whenever, whenever that happened. It was an intentional love. God literally thought about the kind of person that he wanted to have a close, intimate, personal love relationship with and that, that capacity and motivation that God has to love the world, as John 3:16 says, came from the desire that God had of, of a having a personal relationship with you and me. And we can still go deeper into this, this topic. Psalm 19:73 says, Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. You see, to make something. And to fashion something are two completely different things. To make something means to bring it into existence. All right, It's just to, just to make something exist. But to fashion means to design for a known purpose, which takes time and thought beforehand. So not only did God love the thought of having a close relationship with each and every human being enough to create us, but also to fashion each of us for a specific purpose Turn over to Ephesians chapter two. And we're gonna be doing a lot of, of flipping back and forth to different passages tonight. Uh, so I hope you're, you're brushed up on your sword drills. Uh, but this is, this is an incredible thought. Ephesians chapter number two. When you're there, look at verse number 10. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained. That we should walk in them. See, what this verse is telling us is that God has a purpose for every saved person. Now, you probably already knew that. But there are two very important words in this verse, and they are the words before ordained. That phrase before ordained means to prepare beforehand. Well, before what though? What is is this verse talking about? When that verse says to prepare beforehand, It's referring to the time before we were created in Christ Jesus. In other words, the time whenever we were still lost in our sins. So before we were ever even saved, God had a plan of good works in which he had uh, prepared, ordained, that we should walk in them. That word ordained literally interpreted means prepared or blueprinted. So before we ever were even saved, God had blueprinted our lives. He had already prepared our lives. He had a specific job for us to do. He had a definite path for us to walk and a God-given goal for us to reach. And then he saved us to walk that path and to do that job and to reach that goal. And all of that, God took into consideration before he even created us. Why? Because he loved us. I, I know there, there have been several times in our lives where we just feel aimless. You know, especially as a young person. I remember feeling this way. We're, we're wandering around this life not knowing what our purpose is. And so many people, it's really sad to hear so many people experience such deep despair in their hearts. To the point where they, they are uh, about to commit suicide. About to take their own life because they feel they have no purpose But let me say, don't ever think that you were created without a purpose in mind. God loved you too much to create you before he had a perfect plan for your life. And he put that much time and thought and effort and care into every single human being that has ever existed or will ever exist. That is a universal love. Now turn over to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. I, I could keep going with that thought forever, but we're, uh, we're going to move on to the next point. So 1 John chapter 4. Look with me at verse number 9. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 9. The word of God says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. From this we see that point number two, his love is undeniable. His love is undeniable. Jesus died for us. We had that, that thought in the, in the choir song. We had that thought in the, in the special that Miss Chris sang for us. The, that fact in and of itself is astounding. And it really doesn't need any further explanation, but we're going to do it anyways. Uh, contrary to what culture would try to have us believe, love is far more than just a feeling. Love is an action. And we know this from 1 Corinthians 13. It's literally a whole chapter dedicated to describing what true love is. And a lot of that list is made up of actions. And people can say that they love or are loving all that they want, but if they do nothing to show it, then it's meaningless. The word that was used in 1 John 4 9 was the word manifested. And what that word means is to make certain by showing or displaying. In 1 John 15, or not 1 John, John 15, 13 is a verse that many of us know. It says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That is an undeniable display of love. You see, Christ manifested. He made certain his love by his actions. He knew what he was going to go through. He knew the immense pain and suffering that was about to come. We, we see him agonizing over what he was about to go through in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22. So much so that he was sweating great drops of blood. But still, no sacrifice was too great. No pain was too harsh for him to show that greater love that, that John 15, 13 describes. A love that lays down its own life for someone else. But let's dig a little deeper. Why? Did he lay down his life for us? Well, as 1 John 4.10 says, it's to be a propitiation for our sins. Well, what does that mean? The word propitiation is an old word that means something that appeases or something that works to gain the favor of someone. Well, what did? why did we need to be uh, appeased? What needed to be appeased? What, why did we need to gain that favor? As we know, we know what the answer is, the wrath and judgment of God needed to be appeased because of our sin. That's the whole reason that Jesus did what he did. Our relationship to the Father was fractured because of our sin. It was broken. We We lost all favor. There was nothing there. We had no access to the throne of God. But God the Father still wanted us to have a relationship with him and Jesus wanted us to have a relationship with the father like he had remember love always desires to seek God's best for and to meet the needs of the one being loved and so because that is true the father in love sent the son And the son in love willingly went and he did whatever he had to do to make a way to appease the father's wrath. For us to gain favor with the father, even if it meant enduring unimaginable pain and sorrow. And this opens up a new layer of God's undeniable love. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And I know we're all over the place tonight, but I'm, I'm trying to keep this as, as cohesive as I can. Uh, these truths are just, just something that we have to grasp. This is why I titled this Relentless Love because it just keeps pushing and keeps pushing and you just can't outrun it. There's so much there. Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse number two. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross now i don't think that I, i'm i don't think i am at least that i'm capable of fathoming to the full extent what this verse is actually saying this verse is saying that joy is what drove jesus to the cross and that joy is what kept jesus on the cross How could that possibly be? How could could joy be the thing that motivated Jesus to endure the most cruel and excruciating death that humans could conceive at the time? What could that joy have possibly come from? Where could it have been based? What what in the world are are we talking about here? Joy to push somebody to do that? The book of Jude gives us our answer, and you're going to turn there as well. Turn over to Jude, uh, just a few chapters uh, over. It's the second to last book of the Bible, and it's just one chapter. Jude 1, verse 24. Jude 24 says, Now unto him, him referring to Jesus, that is able to keep you from falling, and here it is, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. All right. The joy that drove Jesus to the cross and the joy that allowed him to endure the cross was the joy that Jesus got of knowing that one day, because of what he was going through on Calvary, he would be able to present us holy and perfect and blameless, purified to the Father. Think about that. Jesus' joy came from the thought of being able to present you and me to the Father through every searing strike of the cat of nine tails, through every, every buffet to his face and every reviling word that was thrown at him, through every strike of the hammer uh, from, from, that's driving those nails into his hands and feet, through every single bit of it, Jesus thought, it's worth it. It's all worth knowing that one day, This is Jesus. One day I will be able to present those that are lost in sin with no hope to my Father. And he will no longer see them as wicked and vile sinners, but as holy and blameless children. It was not a selfish joy at all. It was not even a joy from winning or being victorious. It was a joy that was solely focused on our benefit And that kind of love, that kind of self sacrificing, uh, selfless joy can only come from an undeniable love for us. And that leads us to our last point. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and we'll get into it. His love is universal, His love is undeniable. Romans chapter 5, look at verse number 8 with me. Romans 5 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. From this we see point number three his love is undeserved. His love is undeserved. A thought that's still somewhat difficult for me to grasp is that God loves the most vile human being that you or I could possibly imagine so much more than you or I could love anybody. I mean, just think of someone that you love with all of your heart. You know, for, for some, uh, it, it, it may be a spouse, a parent, a sibling, a friend, whoever. Somebody that you love with all of your heart. Somebody that you would never in a million years wish any ill upon. Think about that person. The love that you have for that person does not even compare. It does not even come remotely close to the love that God has for the worst person that we can possibly think of. That is incredible. We quoted uh, John fifteen thirteen earlier. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. What would compel a man to lay down his life for someone else? Brother LeBee talked about this in uh, in men's prayer on Memorial Day. Uh, you know, we honor soldiers that lay down their lives for their country, as we very well should. And I'm not minimizing the sacrifice that those men and women have made at all, but the reason that those men and women have laid down their lives is because they saw something in our country that they believed was worth dying for. It's an honorable thing and an incredible thing for a person to die for their friends. But it is even more incredible and somewhat baffling thing when when someone dies for their friends enemies because Jesus did not die for his friends Jesus died for his enemies look back at Romans chapter 5 look at verse number 9 much more than being now justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more Being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. No matter how good we think we are, every single one of us was at one point God's enemy. And if you're not saved in here tonight, then you still are God's enemy. And let me just say, that's a thought uh, that that should terrify you to your core, because the Bible says that there is a judgment day that is coming where God's wrath will be poured out upon his enemies. And we do not know when that day will come. So I definitely would not gamble with it. But we only have this life to decide whether we will stay his enemies or become one of his children. And that only comes by accepting and putting our dependence in the sacrifice that Jesus made to wash away our sins that we talked about in the last point. That is the only way to go from being an enemy of God to a child of God, the only way. And there will be some, the Bible says, that tried really hard to be good people. You know, they went to church, they they tied, they were kind. They even preached in Jesus's name. And while they did everything good, every good thing that they could think of, whenever they come face to face with God, the Bible says that he will tell them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never even knew you. And they will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Why? Because God's unloving, like a lot of people think? No, very far from it. Because they refused to accept God's undeserved love. That's why. When we were dead in sin, we were against God. We broke his law with our sin. We were responsible for sending Jesus to the cross. We were his enemies. I was the one responsible for putting the stripes on his back. I was responsible for jamming that crown of thorns into his brow. I was responsible for buffeting his face. I was responsible for reviling him. I was responsible for hammering the nails into his hands and feet. We all were responsible for all of it because it's our sin that put him there in the first place. And yet, he loves us. He loves us with a love that is so deep and beautiful that we can't even comprehend it. You know, so often without even realizing it, we try to do things in order to earn the love of God. And we sort of build this this construct in our minds that, you know, if we read our Bible, if we go to church, if we tithe, if we pray, if we do all of these things, if we teach a Sunday school class or we go to church, if, if we just try to be a good person in general, then God will love us more. That's not true. There's absolutely nothing, nothing that we can do to earn the love of God. He just loves us outright wherever we are. But isn't it crazy that while we can't do anything in order to earn God's love, God does things for us. He has done things for us in order to earn our love, in order to convince us to love him. How backwards is that? How is it fair that we as sinners had to do absolutely nothing to convince a holy and pure God, a perfect God, to love us? But a holy and perfect God had to do everything to the point of laying down his own life to convince us to love him. How is it fair that he died for all and yet many still choose to reject him? How is it fair that he gave us everything and yet so many of us still find it difficult to give him anything? How is it fair that he moved heaven and earth to show us just how much he loves us and yet we still sometimes have a hard time believing that he really does? We are woefully undeserving of God's love for us. And yet, Romans 5, 8 uses the word commendeth. And that's a very interesting word. That word commendeth means to stand with or to stand beside. And in this verse, it has the idea that God, knowing that we do not at all deserve his love, knowing that we have the opportunity to reject his love, knowing that many will reject his love, he still stands beside, he still stands in approval of his decision to show us that love by the death of his only son. And so back then, when, when Jesus was going through that horrible death on the cross, he thought, it's worth it. And in Romans 5, 8, after many have have seen that incredible display of love and still choose to reject it, God looks at that display of love that cost him his own son, and he says, it's still worth it. I stand by it. That is an undeserving love. At the beginning of the message, we read 2 Corinthians 5, 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us. Why is it that the love of Christ constrains us? It holds us together. It keeps us from falling apart. Well, it's because whenever we remember the in- indescribable love that God has for us, we begin to finally look at our lives with the proper perspective. You know, when we rest in the love of God, worry and fear will begin to diminish because while we may not know what tomorrow holds, he does. And while, and, and we, we know That if God loves us, then he only desires what is best for us. And if he only desires what is best for us, then that ensures us that he has a perfect will for each and every one of us. And if he has a perfect will for each and every one of us, then he's going to do everything in his power to make sure that his perfect will is accomplished. Even if it means chastening us when we drift away from him. Even if it means allowing trials into our lives to strengthen our walk with him. And like Brother LeBee said this morning, we, we always want to ask that question, what's God's will for my life? But we don't need the answer to that right now. Just be content doing what you know he wants you to do today and trust that he will guide you into that perfect will. When we rest in the love of God, It allows us to no longer view our trials as these horrible inconveniences and heartaches that just infest our life, but rather as a faith-building moment from our Heavenly Father who loves us and is doing everything He can to make us into the people that He desires us to be. When we rest in the love of God, it allows us to no longer view godly correction as this roadblock that's keeping us from enjoying life but rather as the loving discipline from a father that wants to protect us from the damage that sin can bring into our lives. And when we rest in the love of God, it allows you to no longer view going to church or reading your Bible or praying or working in a particular ministry as just something to check off your list each day, but rather as an opportunity to grow closer to and serve the one that loves us and gave his all for us. Remember what we said love was at the beginning of the message. It's desiring to seek God's best for the one that is being loved. If we know that, then we know that God can certainly fulfill that love perfectly. God's will is always best for us because his will is motivated by his relentless love for us. He would never wish or or will anything on us that would not be for our benefit and blessing. But the question is, do you truly believe that? Do you truly believe that God's will is only for your utmost good and blessing because it is motivated by his relentless love for you? If the answer to that question is no, no, then it's because we fail to recognize his love. As 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. It's the very essence of who he is. He can't be anything but loving. Even things like God's wrath and judgment and fury, all of those are still motivated by love, by his love for purity and holiness and justice. And I would even go so far as to say that never once since God himself has existed, Has he acted in a manner that was not motivated by love? So, what makes us think he'll start with us? You can trust that he only desires good for you because he loves you. You can follow his will each and every day, even if it seems frightening or doesn't make sense to you, because he loves you. He thought about you and created a perfect plan for you long before you even existed. You can talk to him because he loves you. He craves more than anything a close and intimate relationship with you. And If you're not saved here tonight, you can ask him to cleanse you of your sins and save your soul from hell because he loves you. So much so that he sent his only son to die an excruciating death so that we don't have to. And if that is not a relentless love, and I have no idea what is. Let's all stand.